I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hello, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I am Sam Evans-Brown, and today on the show, we're going to engage in something that we rarely get the chance to, pop culture commentary. So should we just start with the Netflix series Tiger King, and (laughs) should people watch it or not? (laughs) Well, I guess uh, that's a personal decision that everybody should make for themselves. This is Rachel Neuer. I'm a freelance journalist and author of the book Poached Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking. If you have not heard, Tiger King is a Netflix series, a reality TV show about one of the nation's most infamous tiger breeders, a man who is now in prison in part for conspiring to kill a woman named Carol Baskin, who runs a sanctuary for tigers that people bought as pets when they were cute, tiny cubs, and gave them away when they realized they had purchased a tiger. It kind of seems like everybody stuck at home right now has watched this show. And yes, it is full of drama. But Rachel says there are some ethical issues that viewers might not be aware of. The show is like seven hours of, you know, ridiculous antics, insane characters, um, entertainment. It'll definitely uh, make you forget about the pandemic we're currently in. (laughs) But if you're looking for something, though, that is going to educate you and make you not feel kind of like slimy afterwards, then Tiger King might not be the best option. It really misses a great opportunity for raising awareness about the um, big cat crisis in our country right now. Um, You know, there's more tigers privately owned in the U.S. than are left in the wild. Um, but, you know, that's that's an editorial decision. Not everybody has to make a bleeding heart documentary about saving animals. I totally get that. For me, I think the biggest thing the film actually gets wrong is it um, editorially portrays the two sort of main characters as equals. So this guy, Joe Exotic, um, you know, who's currently in federal prison for 17 counts of wildlife crimes and two counts of murder for hire, is basically portrayed as being on the same playing field morally as the woman he tried to have killed, Carol Baskin, which just is not true. You know, 
Joe Exotic was one of the biggest breeders and sellers of big cats, both legally and illegally, in the country for years. Carol Baskin, on the other hand, is a bona fide sanctuary owner. She doesn't breed or sell cats, and she's made it her entire mission in life to stop the breeding and the um, ownership of private big cats in this country. I'm going to read a piece from a story in The Atlantic on this point, which calls the show's treatment of Baskin an egregious display of false equivalence. Here's the quote. Baskin, Tiger King painstakingly lays out, is obsessed with animal print. The horror. Sometimes she wears flower crowns. She has an uncanny gift for search engine optimization. She rides a bicycle. Her sanctuary relies heavily on unpaid volunteers. The show underscores all of these facts while making the most of the mysterious disappearance of Carol's husband in 1997 and interviewing family members who seem convinced that she killed him. There is absolutely no physical evidence at this time implicating any one individual as a suspect, a police detective firmly and rather crushingly points out. Tiger King doesn't care. It would much rather simply imply several times that she could have fed her husband's corpse to tigers had she been so inclined. Yeah, exactly. So this was an incident in 1997. Carol Baskin's ex-husband, Don Lewis, disappeared. And, of course, there was, like, all kinds of investigations. Um, Carol hired a private investigator herself, and nothing ever turned up. There's zero evidence of, um, you know, foul play. But of course, people who don't like Carol immediately pointed and said like, oh yeah, she must have like killed him and fed him to the tigers. And this is a narrative that has been repeated for literally like over a decade by Joe Exotic as a way to, you know, slander Carol and, you know, get people to chase down this rabbit hole of Don Lewis's disappearance. We don't know if Carol had anything to do with his his disappearance at all. There's zero evidence. Like maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But I also found it really irresponsible to spend, you know, an entire episode just basically airing out um, people's grievances and allegations against her and also painting a really one-sided picture of the story. So Carol, in an interview with me last week, told me that, in fact, she'd never been consulted about this. She never had a chance to respond to these allegations um, because she didn't know they were doing an entire episode about them. There's one, um, there's a scene where Carol, like, it sounds like she's dismissing Don Lewis's family members' concern. She says something like, oh, well, these people are driven by ego and greed or livelihoods or something. She was, in fact, asked about, what would you say to Joe Exotic and people like him? Not what would you say to Don Lewis's family. But the way it's edited, it seems like she's just dismissing this missing guy's family. Rachel Neuer has also co-created her own series about Joe Exotic. But her story... Let's just say, if you read what she's written and listen to her podcast, it will make you see Tiger King in a very different light. It's a four-episode podcast series put out by Long Reads called Cat People, and it talks about the phenomenon of rampant big cat ownership by private individuals in the United States. If you listen to Rachel's series, you'll learn a lot of fascinating stuff about the peculiar American stew of policy and circumstance that have made it very easy for private citizens to own 500-pound wild animals in the United States, like something called the generic tiger loophole, the zoo babies craze, and about an event that Rachel describes as animal-driven terrorism, in which a man released dozens of his pet carnivores outside a city of 25,000 people. I do really recommend the whole series. But we're going to play for you the third episode, because it seems to me like the one that most serves as a necessary corrective to the Joe Exotic narrative. 
You'll hear Rachel narrating the story, being interviewed by her co-host, Peter Frick-Wright. So can you tell me what we're doing? We are trying to navigate this traffic um, on our way to Big Cat Rescue, and I can see the yellow sign. So if a Big Cat owner, like remember Deb Pierce from the last episode, finds themselves completely overwhelmed with their big cats, as many of them do, they can, okay, sell them to a stranger if they can find someone gullible enough to take that bait. Or their best option is to donate these cats to a sanctuary. And who are we going to talk to? We are going there to see Carol Baskin, who is the founder of this organization. And the issue they run into there is while there are these quote-unquote sanctuaries around the U.S., a lot of them are just sanctuary in name, and they're actually just fronts for for breeding animals, for this whole cub petting thing. There's only a few bona fide true sanctuaries that are actually accredited and do legitimate, you know, sanctuary work. Oh, there's a little cat. Hi there. We're going to see your... Oh, great. Oh, my goodness. We're going to see your relatives. Probably the most well-known of those places is Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida. I wanted to come here because if it is going to be possible to solve our country's big cat problem, the solution is probably going to come from here. Hi, and welcome to Big Cat TV. Big Cat Rescue is one of the largest accredited sanctuaries dedicated entirely to big cats. How big is this park? I don't know. I'm very curious to find out. Um, Situated on 67 acres in Tampa, Florida, we provide a permanent home for a variety of species of rescued exotic cats. It's it's right off the interstate, you know, probably like a 20-minute drive from downtown Tampa and the water. Let's do it. You walk in and there's this like gift shop covered in every possible like cat themed thing you can imagine. The pink leopard print golf cart. And I wasn't a normal tourist, so I didn't have to wait for a tour. But if like anyone else wanted to visit, you would join a group tour. It's it's only like set times per day. And you walk around this, this sanctuary, it's all outdoors and it's just cage after cage of various types of big and exotic cats that people have not wanted and have just basically dumped at this place, Big Cat Rescue. Wow, $39 for your tour fee. It's pretty steep. So you say sanctuary, I think green space and, you know, wild sort of like a zoo kind of thing. It's definitely not a zoo. You can't just, like, buy a ticket and get some popcorn and, like, walk around. What you are going to do is you're going to learn about why big cats do not make good pets, and you're going to learn about why uh, the U.S. should really think about tightening its rules about big cat ownership. We also provide educational videos like biggest cat that purrs and meows, videos on how we do things at the sanctuary, and most importantly, what needs to be done to end the abuse and suffering of big cats, and what you can do to help. And who's who's doing the teaching? Um, so the teaching's done by a guide, but the teaching really originates from the ideas of Carol Baskin and her husband Howard. I'm Rachel. I have an appointment with Carol. All right. Yes. Thank you. Just tell her to go away. <laughs> Oh, Howard, it's wonderful to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. Anna. Anna? Hi. Hi. 
Hi, oh, Rachel. It's so nice to finally meet you. <laughs> Anna meet or you. Hannah? Anna. Anna. Yes. Okay. With no hands to shake. With no hands. <laughs> yes. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Carol. <laughs> she is interesting. Um, I'm Carol Baskin, C-A-R-O-L-E. She's tall, and she often dresses like what I picture a Woodstock attendee dressing like. Like, she'll literally wear, like, garlands of flowers in her hair, and... You know, she's got long blonde hair down to her waist, big blue eyes. And Howard is, like, pretty much the opposite of Carol. He has this kind of, like, turtle walk he does. <clears throat> I'm Howard Baskin, and Carol's husband, and I handle mostly our administrative um, tasks. I think he had, like, a pen in his shirt pocket when I met him. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a calculator hiding somewhere. <laughs> They even say, like, we're we're opposites, but we work so well together. Um, um, well, take me through your time that you spent with them, your tour of the property and things. Yeah, we. I was so eager to talk to them, so I was just, like, antsy to, uh, like, sit them down and ask all my questions. But they're like, let's start with the tour. So do tours begin in this room? Yes, we take and... people out, 20 people at a time. Okay. And so we got into this, here. like, glorified, like, jumbo golf cart. And so we're driving around the property, and it's quite wooded. You know, think like oak trees, again, palmettos everywhere, Spanish moss, like leaves all over the ground. So how many residents do you have at the moment? We have right around 60. Of how many species? That's a good question. Um, there's lions, tigers, leopards, cougars, servals, bobcats, caracals, hybrid cats, an ocelot, and a jaguar and a Siberian lynx. It's kind of like these wired cages, and inside are just various cats. They each have their own enclosure, usually, you know, napping on, like, kind of, like, rock structures or under a tree. And during the regular tours, the tour guide has an iPad, mm -hmm. and each guest gets a receiver. Mm -hmm. And so the tour guide can interact with them and talk, but as they come to the cats, the tour guide can press the button, play the cat story, oh, cool. and that way it keeps the stories consistent. One of the stories that really stood out to me was this serval. So this was someone's pet? Yeah, actually a lady in New York had six of these in her basement in what looked to be like a little dungeon. And I hadn't really seen a serval before. They're kind of like, imagine like a leopard that's been shrunk to the cocker spaniel side and then stretched out. So it has like really long, yeah, thin, tall legs, but then the kind of leopardy spots. And, and you know, they look like small enough that you can manage them, but they're not. And each couple of years, she would buy a new kitten because they're only fun to play with for the first few months or to the first couple of years. And then they become who they are and they bite, they scratch. and. People don't want them at that point, but she just kept stockpiling them. And then she ended up in a situation where her sister abandoned her children to this woman. She found out she had cancer. Her house went into foreclosure. And you know, tragedy hit this particular individual, but it was sort of lucky for the servals. The serval I saw looked like it was very much enjoying its life. How old is he? I'm thinking they have their signs on the cages, but I'm thinking he's like 19 or 20. Oh, wow. 
So Big Cat Rescue is kind of this retirement slash foster home for unwanted big cats. But as long as there's big cat trade and ownership in this country, there's always going to be more animals to rescue. And you're never going to be able to rescue all of those animals. And Carol and Howard are definitely big picture kind of people. So after the tour, we sat down and I just said, you know, tell me everything. Start from the beginning. Tell me about this facility and also just what you're trying to do here. I just recently was asked to find a photograph of myself with an animal, you know, an early photograph. And so my mother gave me some old family albums and I was pulling out the pictures and looking on the back to see if there was any further information. And there was a picture of me the day they brought me home from the hospital. My mother's holding me. My dad's holding a kitten, a little orange and white striped kitten. And on the back, it says the cat's name is Tiger. And it was like, well, (laughs) I guess it's been destined from the very beginning because I had no idea that my first cat's name was Tiger. So Carol Baskin's a really interesting and complex character. She, like many big cat people who now advocate for an end to big cat ownership, she used to be a part of the quote-unquote problem. I never had any intention of rescuing big cats. I didn't know there was a problem. And it wasn't until I ended up at a auction where a taxidermist was going to kill a bobcat that I even discovered this was an issue. She was in this real estate business with her ex-husband, and they would use llamas to kind of keep the yards of their properties in check. You know, Florida, things just like grow willy-nilly. So we were at an exotic animal auction buying these llamas when the guy next to me starts bidding on this bobcat. And I had done bobcat rehab and release since I was 17 years old. So I leaned over to him and I said, when that cat grows up, she is going to tear your face off. And he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to clip her in the head in the parking lot. And so there was no way that cat was going to get killed that day while I was there. (laughs) And so she came home with us. And Carol, like, freaked out. She said she started crying. Her ex-husband bit on the bobcat. So that was their first exotic cat, this bobcat. And she was a holy hellion (laughs) around the house and was terrorizing my husband and my daughter and our German shepherd. And so we started calling around, trying to find somebody that would have somebody she could play with that she wouldn't tear to pieces. And my husband found a guy in Minnesota who said, I'll sell you a kitten, but you have to come in person. They drove up there and it turned out that he wasn't a bobcat breeder for pets. He was a bobcat breeder for fur. And Carol again just like freaked out and they wound up coming home with 50 plus baby bobcats and lynxes. 50 plus? Yeah. Sorry, I'm like rushing over these stats because it's so like ingrained in my head. But yeah, imagine that, like 50 wow. kittens. <laughs> like even normal kittens, that would be way too many kittens. Yeah. <laughs> but they were just like, yeah, this will work. This is a good idea. So the next year we got the adults out of there. We had to come home and build cages and that sort of thing. And that was the beginning of the sanctuary. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. 
you know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. Yeah. Join me, Lale Arakopli, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So they open a sanctuary and they call it Wildlife on Easy Street. This place is really nothing like Big Cat Rescue is today because at that time it was more just a place that attracted other big cat lovers who wanted to basically play with and interact with big cats one-on-one. You could even spend $75 and uh, sleep with a big cat in a cabin for the night. Uh, Carol was also breeding a bunch of these smaller exotic cat species because she was under the impression that if she just makes more of these endangered species, she's actually helping them because then there's, you know, more of these cats in the world and they're less endangered. It happened at a time before the Internet was available to us, all of this learning that we were doing. And the only people that we could learn from at that period of time were the breeders and dealers. And they were saying, oh, you should breed these animals because they're endangered. They said the zoos don't know what they're doing and they're going to disappear in the wild. And so we thought, well, that's something that we could definitely do to help save the cats. Like like as if they might sustain a wild population someday. If push came to Maybe, show. or I don't I don't really know what goes through people's heads when they're thinking that. If they're thinking like, oh, they can be introduced into the wild, or if they're just thinking like, oh, their mere existence like makes the species less endangered and you know, just like completely cut off from how conservation works. You know, a species has to be in its environment playing a role to actually sort of matter. Carol, meanwhile, you know, she's breeding these cats and she's selling them to other people so that, you know, they can do the same or whatever. But within, you know, a year or so, she starts noticing that people are bringing their their now grown kittens back to her because they're like, you know, dear Lord, I cannot deal with this bobcat. Like, please take it back. And then I started going to the conferences for the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And I discovered that none of these cats that are in private hands serve any kind of conservation value. And so there's just no reason to be breeding these cats in private hands. And for Carol, that just that's like a, it's like a switch goes off. She does a 360 and she's like, OK, uh-uh. no more breeding cats. I was wrong. I'm going to neuter and spay on my animals and start working on a way to reduce big cat ownership because it's just contributing to a problem rather than solving it. I mean, it sounds like Carol went from being the, like, cliche big cat person to, like, someone who actually looks this problem in the eye and then changes a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean... Carol has a lot of critics. A lot of people do not like Carol because they perceive her as, you know, a threat to their rights, their big cats. And they like to to call her a hypocrite and they like to point to her past, you know, 20 years ago. And one of the first things you'll see if you Google her name and come across some of these articles is allegations that Carol uh, murdered her first husband. So her first husband, he basically walked out the door one day and he was never heard from again. No one could find any clues, nothing. But no evidence was ever actually found linking her to anything to do with his disappearance. So that brings us to Howard, who's really the unsung hero of Big Cat Rescue. Carol founded this sanctuary in the 90s and Howard came on board in the 2000s. 
before Howard came on, you know, Carol's project had a lot of heart behind it, but organizationally, things were a mess. Howard worked over Carol's spreadsheets and he developed a business plan for her. He took things from Carol's passion project to creating an actual functioning nonprofit organization. My profession was going into small businesses where the entrepreneur had started it. So Howard specializes professionally in basically cleaning up the accounting mess of small businesses to enable them to grow. I did a series of those and it takes breaks in between. And uh, during one of those <clears throat> breaks, I met Carol. Where did you guys meet? Well, the full story, and then you can edit it, okay? <laughs> uh, so Carol and Howard met through a mutual friend who was throwing a fundraiser to help lower euthanasia rates for dogs and cats. Friday night, there's this event at the aquarium, just 30 people, great speaker, would you come to that? I said, okay. So I get in my suit and trundle on down to the aquarium, which closes at 5. There was some mix-up with the time on the invitation, so Carol and Howard arrived at the same time and were the first and only two people there. So what do you do? You turn and you say, hi, and there was this very attractive woman behind me. I said, are you going to this pet thing? And she said, yes. And I said, and how does it happen that you're coming to this? And she said, well, I'm the founder of Wildlife on Easy Street and was used to hearing, what's that? And I said, oh, I've been there. Well, I would have just married him right then. <laughs> Somebody that actually knew about us. So we get up to the room, and there's this gorgeous setup with a buffet and candlelight and a bar and a bartender across the way, and nobody else is there. I go to the bartender, and he said, well, it doesn't start till 5.30. So I came back to Carol, and I was just in kind of a flippant mood, and I looked her very seriously, and I said, it turns out there's no function. She looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? I said, turns out the whole thing is a sham that Mary set up just so you and I would meet. <laughs> what year was that? That was in 2002. That was November 1st is, is the day we met at the aquarium, right? Um, and were the big cats a turn-on or a turn-off that this was part of the package? They weren't... Nobody's ever asked you that before. Oh, that's why I'm struggling. <laughs> uh, they, they were neither. And Carol Howard really saw a project. You know, he saw someone uh, beautiful and motivated that you know, he was attracted to and wanted to help. But more than that, he saw a chance to really fix things for her sanctuary and move things forward in the same way that he did for small businesses throughout his career. What happened was Carol brought me out of the sanctuary that January after a few dates. And I kind of have this natural... I don't know, instinct or almost addiction to fix it, you know? And so I made the big mistake of saying maybe I could help. Apparently on their honeymoon, Carol and Howard wrote out this like 20 or 25 year plan of like their life mission to stop big cat ownerships. They call it to like to stop the bad guys from exploiting big cats. So we're like 15 years into their 25 year plan. Yeah, I mean, they've made some pretty good progress, though, on this plan. Carol, over the years, has built up this ginormous online following. She does, like, a live stream video practically every day. They are avid Facebook posters. And, I mean, they have, like, over a million people following their operations and donating to them. And they're really using that following uh, to their advantage to achieve the goals that they've they've set out to do. So one of the first 
really big things they did was the closure of this thing called the generic tiger loophole. That rule in 1998, Fish and Wildlife Service said... So the generic tiger loophole, you might remember, there's all those um, mutt tigers. They're no longer six, the six subspecies that occur in the wild. They're just complete American mutts. And the Fish and Wildlife Service decided, hey, we're not going to regulate these mutt tigers. Protections under the Endangered Species Act won't apply to them. And that allowed those tigers to be freely traded around the country. So it created this just open door for these people to breed. The only solution is to change the laws so this isn't happening. But it takes forever to get a rule made or changed. So um, back in 2011, they linked up with major nonprofit organizations who kind of were aligned on the same vision. And they all as a group decided like, okay, like this is one of our big goals and we're going to get this done. So Carol and Howard pretty much just sicked their huge social media following on this issue. And then they had their followers absolutely inundate Fish and Wildlife with 15,000 comments saying, yeah, close the loophole, close the loophole. Like 15,000. So, like, yeah, so Fish and Wildlife was like, oh my gosh, like, fine, we'll close the loophole, which they did in 2016. What's the next thing that they are trying to do or what did they do next? So their sites are next set on passing federal legislation. So a bill that would actually give complete federal oversight to big cat ownership. And this this bill is called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And it would basically do two big things. First of all, it would ban any public physical contact with big cats. So this is like cub petting or like having a cheetah at your wedding that everyone's like taking photos with, things like that. The other thing that that federal oversight would do is force everybody who had a big cat to register it. And, you know, while it wouldn't ban big cat ownership outright, it would at least mean that we'd know, okay, where are all these cats? So, you know, if somebody like Terry Thompson decides to throw open the cages for his animals, you know, going in like, okay, we have to find 12 tigers. So, but it sounds like they're going to have to get Republican support behind something that is essentially adding governmental oversight to the lives of Americans. Like, it seems like a difficult thing to do. Yes. And if they were coming at this only from this tree hugger, let's save the big kitties point of view, it would probably be impossible. But the secret weapon in their arsenal of support is the public safety part of the Big Cat Public Safety Act. Over here is a, is a, this is what I've been very successful with with big cats right here, is an umbrella. Now, so Tim Harrison retired from his job as a cop slash firefighter slash paramedic, but he hasn't really retired from that world. What he does now is he spends his time traveling all over the country, training first responders with how to deal with, for example, a tiger that they find in a house. And you see, uh, see a tiger or a lion in somebody's home or something like that, and you need to back them off a little bit, and you don't want to shoot them at that time. What happens is, is you come at him with your umbrella, and he freak out. 
big cats absolutely freak out. And those <laughs> so the rules of engagement with a tiger are like try and move it via umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Also being like a very calm. I mean, Tim says his ultimate goal is safety for animals and also safety for people. It's the people part, though, that helps them make a case for this new law. One of the political contexts here that you have to understand is that for us on the Republican side, the story has a lot more weight when you kind of talk about the public safety aspect of it. This is Ryan O'Dwyer, a lobbyist that came to Florida for the Republican National Convention a few years ago. He happened to go to Big Cat Rescue, and he's been working with Howard and Carol in Washington ever since. Especially in Washington, when we're trying to gain Republican favor, um, where they're not so keen on the idea of federal empowerment over an issue like this, we can say, well, look, you know, are you against protecting our first responders? The other thing about this legislation is it's not just about protecting first responders or lowering the number of these American tigers. It doesn't really seem like there would be a connection between tigers in captivity here in the U.S. and tigers living in the wild. But because there's a robust black market for tiger parts in Asia, any tigers in captivity can and do feed into the black market for tiger parts. And any availability of tiger parts is bad for tigers in the wild because it perpetuates demand for tiger products and that encourages people to poach. As long as there's going to be money that can be made off of, you know, a dead tiger that someone kills in the wild, people will continue to pursue that activity. More than that, though, the fact that we have all these tigers in backyards and basements, and we don't even know how many we have, and, you know, it's completely legal in a lot of places, it affects the ability of U.S. diplomats to bring this point up with China. So when, you know, they go to China and they're like, hey, we would like you to get better about tiger conservation and crack down on the black market trade in your country. The Chinese just kind of laugh at them and are like, who are you to talk? You guys don't even know where all your tigers are. So the bill is making good progress in the House. It was reported out of the Committee on Natural Resources on September 18th, and since then they've got a 95 more co-sponsors. So they now have 220 co-sponsors signed up to support the bill there, and they're hoping it's going to be sent to the floor for a vote before the end of this year. If that happens, it's almost certainly going to pass. In the Senate, on the other hand, the bill was just introduced at the end of September, and so far it has 13 co-sponsors. So if you had to give the, like, the Big Cat Public Safety Act a grade... As far as like, how far is it going to go to solve this problem? Uh, how 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 good is it? Would you say B? Maybe maybe B minus if I'm you know in a bad mood. Okay. Why do you, why do you say? Well, because you can still have big cats if you you know check all the boxes. I mean, that said, I do think the Big Cat Public Safety Act will go a really long way to stopping this problem because. You're just not going to have the same number of animals floating around kind of in need of a home because of that cup petting part of it. Yeah. It's like not only are there not going to be as many animals present or available, but you're also not planting the idea in people's head that like, oh, hey, I can have a a tiger too. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're living in this moment where the idea of owning a tiger is not ridiculous. 
No, not at all. It has been ridiculous for most of history. Yeah. It's weird that people need to be reminded of that, but that's where we're at right now. This is the inside. The first time we did Undercover, this is going to shock you right here. It's Inside Edition Undercover. I don't do much with Inside Edition, but nobody else would listen to me. So the boy got his arm ripped off by a neighbor's tiger. Every time these groups tell you nobody gets injured, it's always the people that own the animals. It's a bunch of crap. We picked this out of 300 stories that year of children injured. This boy went right over to the neighbor's house, reached through to pet the tiger, and got his arm ripped off. Paramedics did a fantastic job. And the next little girl, beautiful little girl, her dad had a, a tiger. It jumped over him, played rough with her, and broke her neck. And people said, this is the dad here. He's a doctor, too. The sad part about this is, is people don't know what's going on. Well, we took them there. This is an auction in Amish country, Mount Hope, Ohio. The biggest auction in the country at the time. Look at the crowd when you get in here. I don't know if we can turn the lights off. Look at the crowd. The crowd is massive. Look at that. Black leopard cubs, as fast as you can bring them out. As fast as you can bring them out, cougar cubs. So when somebody tells, look at the boxes over there. Look at the crowd. That's just one building. And all these animals are all stacked on top of each other. They're all tigers, leopards, cougars. When people say, is cougars coming back to Ohio? No, they're being turned loose in Ohio. Now, when you get to the black leopard cubs... That was Rachel Neuer, a freelance journalist whose work can be found in the New York Times, National Geographic, and more. Her story, The Strange and Dangerous World of America's Big Cat People, an accompanying podcast, Cat People, was published by Long Reads. It was produced by Peter Fickwright and Audrey Quinn. Music and sound design by Robbie Carver, editing by Mike Dang and Chris Outcult, art by Zoe Van Dyke, and fact-checking by Matt Giles. This was just a little bonus episode that we dropped here at Outside In, which, by the way, is produced by me, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and whose executive producer is Erica Janik and is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. We will be back next week with another original episode of Outside In.